Father God, we thank you for this time, for this place to look into your word, to gain knowledge about what is happening around us. We thank you for a religious freedom that is given us to gather so. We would look into that, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This picture here is a picture of Mansi, Mansfield Correctional Institution. This beautiful facility houses about 2,500 wannabe Boy Scouts. This is, you can see the idyllic setting, the nature setting of the rolling hills, the trees. These individuals get, most of the time, three square meals a day. They have recreation facilities. There's outdoor recreation facilities. They have two gyms. They have a commissary where they can buy junk food. They have medical service, dental service, mental health service. They have it all. A self-contained community. And you would think they would be happy having it all, a place to sleep, three meals a day, free services. But there's a problem. One problem. If you look closely, there's this thing called a fence right around here, and it goes all the way around. And a double fence, a tall fence, not tall enough for some people, apparently. But it's topped with razor wire. So the problem these citizens have is they have no what we call freedom. They can't come and go outside of the confines of the institution without permission, although some of you may have read that one of our citizens did leave without permission. He was gone about a day. He got over both fences. That's another story in itself, but he was out about one day, and then he was caught and tackled in a general store about 10 miles up the road. And somebody said you can see that on YouTube or Facebook or something. Anyway... So the problem here is a lack of freedom. You have everything else you need to sustain life, but the one thing that's missing is freedom. And that's what we want to look at, this concept that we use here in North America of religious freedom, the freedom we have to gather where we will in the numbers we want to without fear of persecution. The problem is the, the left, you can call it the left, the liberal, the media, the administration, Satan, whatever you want to say, the enemy, the opponent, wants to slowly compress us into something like a prison and say, yes, you have the freedom to worship. You can go to your church, your local church, and worship. But that's it. That is the extent of your religious freedom. So in effect, they want to imprison us and say, you can go to your church, or you can have your conscience at home, but we don't want to hear about what you think about any issues in the public square. We want to shut you up. We want to keep you in your church, and you can do whatever you want within the four walls of your church, but we don't want to hear your voice outside of those four walls on any issue. We don't want to hear it. So what we want to talk about is how this, this religious freedom concept affects us individually, the community, and the state, the state being the government. Go ahead, Jonathan. And here's the bottom line. This is what Paul said. The whole point of us talking about religious freedom in the first place is this. Finally, brethren, pray for us that word of the Lord may have what? May have free course and be glorified. The point of all this, of religious freedom, is that the word of God has free course, that it can spread unhindered. That is why we are concerned about religious freedom, or should be concerned if we're not concerned. Does the word of God have free course in the public square? Not does it have free course in the four walls of the church or the four walls of your house. Does it have free course in the public square? Here, as far as U.S., this is what we base our religious freedom on. We know Amendment Number 1. Interesting that the Constitution 
was ratified before the Bill of Rights was ratified. It was two separate documents. And the states had an issue then saying, you know, this Constitution has no, no specific rights, to put it so. So the people who came up, Washington and the boys, they said, okay, well, you pass this, and the first thing the new Congress will do is get this Bill of Rights together. And if they tried that now, I don't think we would trust them. But back then, trust was a little better, and so the Constitution was ratified, and later the Bill of Rights was added to it. Congress shall make no law, no law, respecting what? An establishment of religion. You cannot establish a state religion, whether it's apostolic, Christian, Baptist, Muslim, Catholic, whatever. You cannot establish a state religion, which was the big problem. We'll get to that or prohibiting the free exercise of freedom of religion. We're not going to establish a religion, a state religion, but we're not going to prohibit you from practicing your religion. Now, Canadians, they've got a few more issues here. From what I, and you Canadians experts on this, help me out. This, I don't know much about this, but let's see if this works out. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms is part of the Constitution Act. I think that has been redone several times since the 1800s. But it looks like the latest installment of the Constitution Act was signed by Queen Elizabeth II in 1982. In any effect, it does give the freedom of conscience and religion, freedom of thought, belief, opinion, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, and so on. That's Section 2. This is great. It sounds good. The problem is in Section 1. Go ahead, Jim. Section 1 of the Charter is a little more problematical from our standpoint. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms. That sounds good. Set out in it, subject. Subject to what? If you read our U.S. amendment, it didn't have any subject to clause in it. But here the Canadians added, subject only to what? To such reasonable limits. Okay, right now they are saying, we are going to subject your rights to reasonable limits. We're giving you these rights, but we're going to subject them to reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. What does that mean? Well, it means what the courts tell you it means. So every challenge has to go through the system. And I, I think there's various test cases that have been established how this, this clause about reasonable limits is to be used. Okay, but it is, it's, it's an out. If you really want to say, well, you know what, this religious liberty has gone too far, the apostolic Christians are too far on the fringe, they are not healthy for a free and democratic society, we have to put limits on them. So th there are ways here that somebody not out for the best interests of any country could use this to the detriment of a church. Go ahead. Now, our Catholic brothers, our Catholic friends, we can put it that way, maybe better. Vatican II, Council Vatican II in 1965, they, they came on board after many, many years, and this is very interesting what they say, being that the Roman Catholic Church was, in effect, a state church of, of Western civilization for a long time. They say, the exercise of religion, freedom of religion of its very nature, consists above all else of those internal, voluntary, and free acts whereby man sets the course of his life directly towards God. No merely human part can either command or prohibit acts of this kind, which, if you look back at the history of the Catholic state church, this is kind of a 180 degree, all of a sudden they're saying, wait a minute, we were wrong all those years. We understand now that no power can compel, no earthly power can compel you to worship God or not to worship God. The freedom, the concept, freedom of religion it's not that old. We think like, yeah, freedom of religion, that's been around forever. No, it hasn't. It has not been around. It's a slow evolution to what we enjoy now in North America. The church spread. We know the early church. Around 300s, in the early 300s, Emperor Constantine, 
And I read his interesting account of his supposed, and maybe it was, conversion to Christianity that he conquered Rome under the sign of the cross that came to him supposedly in a vision. And therefore, shortly after he, he instituted the Christian church, basically more or less as a state church, and from there slowly we got the dominance of the Roman Catholic Church becoming more or less a state church and, and being co-equal and in many times more powerful than the secular government for hundreds and hundreds of years. And this started changing only in the, in the late 1400s, the 1500s. Thomas Helwes, he's interesting. He was one of the founders of what we consider the Baptist. Go ahead, one. back one, I'm sorry. Founder of the Baptist denomination. And he, re- he wrote several books. One of them, as a side, is a listing of a, a statement of faith, basically, of the Baptist, which is surprisingly, except for one or two items, close to our statement of faith. But he was one of the first who said, look, it's not just the idea of you tolerating another religion. We want freedom of religion, not just toleration, saying, yeah, we can tolerate you as tolerating a thorn in the side, as Paul saying, yeah, I'm tolerating this thorn. But we want full freedom of religion, which he, he put forth in his, uh, one of his books, A Short Declaration of the Mystery of Iniquity. So he sent a copy of the book with a little note penned on it to King George I. I'm sorry, King James I. I got the baby on my mind. James I, the same king who authorized the King James Version of the Bible, the same King James arguing for liberty of religion, saying, look, you know, you're the king, you're great, you're all this, long live the king, but we would like freedom of religion because up to this time there was maybe a little toleration, but a lot of persecution of anybody that went against the Anglican Church, which had been turned over from Roman Catholicism, more or less by Henry VIII and his uh, woman trouble, women trouble. So he appealed to King James and said, give us freedom, and King James said, not happening. Not happening. He took Thomas, threw him in jail, and there Thomas died. For asking what? For freedom of religion. So the Reformation... You think back about Wycliffe, who, who translated into English roughly in the 1300s, and then Tyndale, who translated and both mostly the New Testament, parts of the Old Testament, and they were looking for the ability of everyone, instead of you having a Latin prescribed Bible that your church read to you, they said, look, everybody from the plowboy to the king should be able to read this Bible, God's word. And so the the Reformation and the spreading and the printing of these English Bibles started as, as King James, you know, that's not really what we want. So the Protestants came into power as the Reformation went on, and one state church replaced the other state church. We had Henry VIII, who disestablished the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church started, and that became the state church. In other areas, the Lutherans and other Protestant denominations, they supplanted the Roman Catholic Church, but they, in turn, became the state church. And so in England and other countries, you were still forced, in one way or the other, to support the state church. Because people said, hey, look, this idea, the church people have to be part of the church because the church supports the state and we're working hand in glove. So there was compulsory saying at some point everybody has to say, yeah, I'm part of the church. So you go around and say, okay, are you part? Yeah, I'm part of the church. If you ask if you're a Christian, I don't know what that means, but I'm part of the church. So you're forcing people to be part of the state church, the Anglican church, and Scotland, the Presbyterian Church, you're forcing conformity. 
conformity against people's true beliefs, whether they believed in some other religion or no religion at all. You were forcing conformity, and they were licensing ministers. You had a big program you had to go through and get a license to be able to minister, and most of those did not live upstanding lives to begin with. So there was a problem. And in England especially, there was a long-running battle between the Anglicans and Presbyterians, the resurgent Catholics once in a while get in the fight again. But out of all this was coming, as, as uh, hell was, was part of, you, you've got the Baptists were starting out, the Anabaptists, the Puritans, who wanted to purify the Anglican church. The Puritans settled in Massachusetts. The Separatists said, no way, we don't want any part. We're not even going to try to purify this church. We want a separate church. They were known over here as the pilgrims who settled in Plymouth, the Baptists and the Anabaptists. And these were all, all of them, were heavily, to one extent or another, persecuted, especially the Separatists, the Baptists, and the Anabaptists were all persecuted. King James I, the others, because we had a state church. There was no free religion. And think, this is in the 1600s, not that long ago. And still... The persecution. The last, the last, the last martyr, if we can say it that way, was put to death in 1611 in England. 1611, barely 400 years ago, they were still killing people for what they quoted heresy. And what was this man's heresy? He was a Baptist. He was a Baptist. And his, well, he could have been an Anabaptist for that. That was his sin. There was no freedom of religion. But that was the battle was starting to form this idea that this is not what God's word is telling us, you know, that, that you have one group that compulsory forces everybody to be part of one denomination. So we're going to move now to the, to the states, and this is... This is really where things started to get a little better because we have Virginia. Virginia. Let's think about this. Massachusetts. We had the Puritans establish Boston. We had the Pilgrims establish Plymouth. There was Rhode Island that was created in an attempt for religious freedom. But the idea of the Northeast being this hotbed of people coming over from Europe seeking their, their religious freedom. And that was the basis, more or less, for the founding of New England. We are seeking to practice our religion, whether Puritanism or Separatism or Roger went over, Roger Sermon Williams went over to uh, Rhode Island. But it's in Virginia where this concept of religious freedom really took root. In Virginia, 1607, the landing at Jamestown, there was no even idea there of religious freedom. That was not why they went to Virginia to settle there at Jamestown. The idea was land gold, making money, gentlemen coming over from England wanting to be gentlemen here in America, but they did not come over for the same reasons that people settled in New England. But instead of religious freedom sprouting in New England, no, it actually came to prominence in Virginia. And so we have Thomas Jefferson. 1786, Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. This was after the Revolutionary War, but all during that time there had been attempts to see what are the limits of a state church. Understand that in the colonies there was still a state church that you had to support, and most of those were supported by taxes, you paid a certain amount to support the church, whether you wanted to or not. So what this all comes down to 
If you can get through the writing of the grammar of hundreds of years ago, the idea here is that Jefferson is arguing, look, even God, as the creator, as the controller, even God does not force you to be anything, Christian or non-Christian. God, who has the right to, does not force us to become a Christian or to join a particular denomination. And if God who in his almighty power has the capability to do that, if he doesn't do it, what right do men, what right do men have to force you to join one or the other or any church? So this was finally put through the, the legislature there and enacted in, in 1786. So we're starting to see there's cracks in this idea of the state church and people having to support the state church. James Madison, talking about having to pay taxes to support the state church, there was a a bill going through that said, look, we got to levy a fee to support the state church. And this was only a year, year after Jefferson's. And James Madison said, no way, you can't do that, it's not right. You can't do that. So he wrote a paper, Memorial and Remonstrance Against Religious Assessment, saying you cannot, you have no right to levy a fee, a tax, to support a state church. And part of that, he said, it's the duty of every man to render to the Creator homage, such only as he believes to be acceptable to him. This duty is precedent precedent, the duty of religious freedom, in effect, the duty of you and I to the Creator, that duty is precedent, is much more important, both in order of time and degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. So what the founders are realizing is, as the Bible says, our duty is to obey God rather than man. The same idea that's brought out in the Bible, same thing here. Medicine saying, look, our duty is to obey God rather than man. We will not support a state church. And this, John Leland, he was a friend of Madison. This is very interesting. This applies kind of today as government gets more and more involved in in religious affairs. If government, if we get to the judgment seat and we say, look, God, I was a citizen of the United States of America. When President Obama was president, talk to him, God, and he will tell you. And he will answer for my sins. Basically, that's what John Leland's saying. If government can answer for our sins at judgment day, then we can let government control our religious affairs too. That's profound. If government will answer to God for our sins, if it has that much power and authority, well then, okay, let it determine our religious freedom. Let it, in effect, control our religious freedom and expression. But only if it can also answer to God for our sins at Judgment Day. Okay, we want to get into some, bring it up to the modern day a little. Understanding that finally, not much over 200 years ago in the 1780s, was the concept of religious freedom, total religious freedom, cemented in this country. So we have basically 230, 40 years of religious freedom. That's it. That's how much time we have had for true religious freedom. And that's under attack already. Madison and Jefferson, over long periods of time, they took from the Reformation, from the Baptists and the Anabaptists, brought that all together finally, and working with the persecuted, again, the Baptists, Anabaptists were persecuted here, especially the Baptists in Virginia, until 
the statute of religious freedom came through in the First Amendment. So a little over 200 years that we've actually enjoyed anything that could be called religious freedom. And so we come up to today and the, the challenges we face. Chick-fil-A, this one was about ah, a year ago in August. If you remember, the owner said something on the internet about homosexuality and the, the radical left went bonkers. And as a response to that, I think Chick-fil-A a few days later, whatever, had their greatest sales day ever as people supported the right of the owner of an enterprise to speak his mind. Whether you agreed with it or not should not be the point. Chick-fil-A, Catholic Charities in several states. We know that the homosexual lobby has been working hard and probably has succeeded several states to adopt. And in those states, Catholic Charities, which also takes care of adoptions, was forced out of the adoptions because obviously they stood up for their religious freedom and said, look, we don't support homosexual adoption. And so the state said, okay, well, you're out of the adoption. You can't do it anymore. You can't do it anymore. We'd rather have kids running around with no support than have you possibly, possibly adopt a child to a Christian couple. Lord forbid that would happen, to actually have a Christian couple adopt somebody. Pharmacies, this has been going for several years, the idea that if you're a pharmacist, you have to dispense in several states, you have to dispense basically morning after pills, abortifacients, pills that can cause abortion. And there were some lawsuits filed against that, and several that were one that says, no, the freedom that I as a pharmacist have does not end at my church door, at my house door, especially since there's a pharmacist a block down the road who will be glad to give you any pills you want. So this is an ongoing battle. Sometimes there's several suits that have been won that says you as a pharmacist do not have to prescribe abortifacients. Tyndale House, same thing with Tyndale House. Tyndale House is probably the biggest privately owned Christian publisher in the world. And again, they were given this mandate, you have to, you have to provide your employees with sterilization and abortifacients and morning after pills. And that was taken to court, and, and before it was pressed, the Obama administration backed off and said, ah, no, just forget that, you know, that, that doesn't really sound too good that we're forcing a Christian publisher to do this, so for sake of image, we're going to back off on that. So Tyndale House right now is on a uh, preliminary injunction as these cases go to court. Free speech. 2010, the United States Supreme Court said that if I'm a Christian organization at a college, Ohio State, whatever, I'm a Christian organization at college, one organization among many, many, many organizations. I do not have the right to have a code, a statement of faith, a code, a pledge, something that says that if you want to join this Christian organization, you need to support our stance on whatever, abortion, homosexuality, uh, whatever it is. The court basically said that if you have a Christian organization, you cannot say to anybody that wants to join, you have to support Christianity. No, you have to take all comers. So the upshot of this is that basically, slowly, colleges are forcing out Christian groups. You cannot use the campus facilities unlike any other group. The gay, transgendered, whatever, can use anything. But you as a Christian organization, unless you take all comers, in which case your organization doesn't mean anything, 
you can't use that. And one of the big ones was Vanderbilt University a few years ago basically kicked out all their Christian groups. New Jersey, University of Medicine and Dentistry. Mm, a few years ago. Department of Same-Day Surgery, Ambulatory Surgery Unit. Anyway, the hospitals have a unit where you get elective surgery done. You're basically healthy except you're scheduled for some elective procedure. They have pre- and post-op nurses. There were 12 nurses on the same-day surgery unit. Not the surgical nurses. These do pre-op care, post-op care. And the decree came down and said, you know what, we're going to make you now take part in abortion procedures because one of the elective surgeries the hospital did here was abortions. And they believed everybody should train in that, take part in that, no matter what your religious feelings might be on the issue of abortion. Remember again, these are elective procedures. This is not an emergency. Their nurse says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, this is our stance. We're Christians. What point is it if I go in and do abortions, I might as well just throw Christianity out the window. It really won't matter what I believe in if I'm going to take part in something I can't believe in. So they got together, 12 nurses got together, they hired counsel, and after some time, and especially the threat of firing, of termination, the 12 were told you do this or we're going to fire you, and eventually through some negotiation, they did win back the right to say, no, we are not going to do this. And they were supported. The hospital finally backed off and said, okay, 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 you don't have to do it. And there was no retaliation against them. So it's a problem. And sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. But the idea is there has to be some kind of struggle here for what is right, for what is true, and what we believe in. And the biggest one right now is the Health and Human Services Mandate, otherwise known as, as Obamacare. There are over 60 lawsuits now against the provision of Obamacare that says if you are an employer and you have 50 or more employees, you must provide for them insurance, whether you're self-insured, you buy it or whatever, with sterilization, with contraceptives, morning-after pills, abortifacients. You must do it or you will be fined. Those fines, I think, are going to be starting this year sometime, maybe August. So over 60 organizations representing, I mean, 60 lawsuits representing 200-plus clients have filed lawsuits against this that says, no, this violates our religious freedom, what we believe. You can't do that. So these lawsuits are going through the system, and we talked about Tyndale House. They got a preliminary injunction that says, look, you don't have to pay any fines to your lawsuit winds its way through the court system. Hobby Lobby, the big one. Last Friday, last Friday, federal court said, yes, Hobby Lobby, you have a point. You have a point, Hobby Lobby. And we will also support a preliminary injunction that says you also do not have to pay the fine, which I know would have been over a million dollars a day. You do not have to pay the fine because you have a point until the lawsuit makes its way through court. So there's a struggle, a back and forth, and you say, wait, you know, I don't really care because I don't employ 50 people. That's not the point. The point is setting precedent. The, the Constitution, we would like to think, is a solid rock document, solid as this very foundation. But no, as we know, the Supreme Court likes to play changer of the Constitution, finds things in that aren't in there. The right to abortion, it's not in there, can't find it. 
But the Supreme Court can find these things, as they say, in the penumbra, in the shadow of the Constitution. Suddenly, these rights come out of the shadows like, like illegal aliens. And the court finds them and says, this is now the law of the land. And there it is. We say, where did they find that? These are educated people. Where did they find that? It's not here. Well, you know, the Constitution is a living, breathing document. We have to form that Constitution to society. And that's the problem. Once you set precedents, courts take that and say, you know what? We can mold and move, and slowly we can come over to take out a little more freedom here and a little more freedom there. Because society has changed, and the left tells us, you guys with your religion that's you know, 2,000 years old, you can't, you're not moldable. You guys are so rigid in what you believe is true. You guys are way too rigid. You don't like women. You don't like homosexuals. You don't like this. You don't like that. You guys are way too rigid. You've got to flex with the times. And this is part of making us flex with the times. If you give in on this, you're giving ground. And then they'll come back again. And it's never enough. It's like Hitler. He started slow. He took a little bit of this, he took a little bit of that, and suddenly he took all of Austria and nobody made a big deal. And he said, look, I want part of Czechoslovakia. Yeah, that's fine, we'll give you part of Czechoslovakia. And before you know it, we're in a world war where 50, 60, 70 million people are dead. You give them an inch, you let that camel's nose under the tent, they're going to take more. Yeah. So the idea... Is that the bottom line is, are we seekers and responders to the truth? The truth. And there's only one truth, so it's not that hard. You don't have to sift through everything because we can tell you there's just one truth. You don't have to go looking, trying to find a new truth somewhere. It's been there. It's God's word. It's been there. The idea that the left, that Obama, through his human health and human services mandate is trying to isolate the Christian community. Again, it's like isolate us. Religion is all about freedom of worship. Is that all it is? Is it freedom for me to worship in a church? Or is there more to it? And the administration many times in doing these mandates and say, yeah, you have the freedom of worship. We are not coming through your church doors but we're going to be after you as soon as you get out of those church doors with anything and everything we have. So we cannot be in a religious community. We should not be subordinate because a society, a vital, good society is made up of good people. Not good of our own, but good through Jesus Christ. And the government, yes, it was ordained by God. It's absolutely necessary. You've got to have government to maintain the old order. But what is that government made out of? Is it men and women who are just or unjust? It's the creature, creature, not the creator of our rights. Government is the creature, not the creator. The servant and not the master. The servant and not the master of the people. Go ahead. The struggle, when people talk about your religion, you Christians, when they talk about homosexual rights and abortion rights and uh, experimenting on embryos and embryonic stem, and all these things, when they're talking about religion, they usually mean Christianity. They're usually not attacking any other religions. They're usually attacking Christianity because our orthodoxy, our truth is troublesome to someone who wants to live as if there is no truth. To someone who wants to do what they want and doesn't want to think about consequences, our orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy, Christian truth is a big problem. How to get around that? We can isolate the Christians. First, we can isolate them. So you can go to your house of worship and you can worship. But don't talk about these things publicly. Don't talk about your beliefs. Don't talk about your truth. Don't talk about your morals publicly. Keep it in your church. 
Christians are limited in their influence on public life. The nuns. This is part of the battle and probably a big part of Obama's victory. Was it last year? It's been that long. The nuns. When people do surveys, there's boxes you can check. What religion are you? And many years ago, the people who checked the box, they have no religious belief. The nuns, no belief, was around 3%. Recently, the people that checked none, no religious affiliation, don't care, is over 20%. The nuns are radical left. Radical left, the nuns. I want to do what I want to do. The nuns in effect, are in power in a lot of institutions, colleges, universities, government. The nuns are an elite group. They hold a lot of power, and they are on the left. Particularly now, it's not so much the Orthodox that we are colliding with with Islam, although we are colliding so much with Roman Catholicism or with Hinduism or anything else. The collision is between the nuns And us, people who actually not just check Christianity, anybody can check Christianity, but people who actually somewhat regularly attend an Orthodox church, which is probably not much more of a percentage than the percentage of nuns. So we are basically in battle with the nuns. And it's not just a matter of, I believe in God, you believe there is no God. That's not the extent of it. It's gone much further than that. It's an ideological, a culture, a political battle. To say, can we isolate Christianity so they will shut up and we don't have to deal with them anymore? The state church. Western civilization, we had more or less a state church from Constantine to the Reformation. But we are not fighting a state church now. There is no state church unless you want to call secularism, materialism, whatever, a a religion, which you can make the argument it is. But we are fighting the state as church, the state trying to take over the functions of the church. That is what we are fighting against. Not a state church but the state as church now, taking over the functions of what a church should be, saying, look, I can feed you. Well, we got 50 million people on food stamps. I can feed you. I can take care of you. I can give you medical care and dental care. Call me. I'm the government. There's ads on radio. You want food stamps? We've got to sign you up. Anybody eligible for food stamps, please sign up. Why? Because instead of the church helping and giving, it is now the state, the government, saying, come to us if you need help. We've got the food. We've got the medical care. We have the iPhones. You've got to have an iPhone. And what else? We have Internet access for you. You need a big TV. We can get you a TV. You need transportation. We can get you either free transportation or you can turn in your clunker, get your clunker, cash for clunkers, and we can get you a vehicle. This is all that we as the state, as government can do. We will be your caretakers. Number one, you don't need a God in your life because the government is taking care of you. Jesus is saying, wait, you know, don't worry about taking care of yourself. God's going to provide. No, don't worry about taking yourself because government's going to provide. And in too many cases, it does. So we say, God, we don't need you because the state's taking care of me. Don't need you. We're isolated. Once you're isolated, we can deal with you. We can defeat you in detail, one church at a time. If Christianity is not in the public square, telling the truth, speaking the truth, if we're relegated to only a church building, we can be defeated in detail, one church at a time, one denomination at a time. So, what's the evangelical community done or not done? 
Obviously, the one is do not allow anybody to relegate us to not speaking the truth. See, I am committed. Last night, I pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ. Okay, we pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ. What does that mean? You talk about him. You tell the truth. You tell the truth. You don't have to do it in a mean way. You just discuss the truth with people. But you can't, we cannot be defeated and said, no, we are too scared to say anything outside of the four walls of our church. That is not how the early church grew. That is not the Apostle Paul. He went to the downtown Athens and proclaimed the truth. That is not how the early church grew. But I think we as, as a group, as a people, we, we've kind of coalesced a bit and said we want to be a little more isolated. We don't really want to be the salt and light because... One, it's tough. Two, there's nasty people out there. Three, we don't want to exert ourselves. But God calls us, you've got to fight the battle. Whether we win or lose is not the point. You fight the battle. Occupy till I come, Jesus said. You defend religious liberty in the courts. A lot of the reasons we're not farther down the road on Obamacare is because there has been court struggles and we can say, well, as a denomination, we really don't believe in, in all this. But understand that even Paul used all the power he had as a Roman citizen to further the cause. We have a constitution that gives us certain rights. And I'm not saying we as a group need to take part, but there are groups that are defending religious liberty in the courts, and we have to be thankful for them, whether we think that's the right thing to do or not on our own selves. But some of the big ones, the ADF, the Alliance Defense Fund, or Alliance Defending Freedom, I think they changed their name. The Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, it's not a Christian organization, but they are the two main ones that are handling the cases against Obamacare. And you say, well, I really don't care about Obamacare, I don't have 15 employees. But remember, it's the precedent. You take a little bit at a time, fight the battle. Teach and preach. Lyndon Johnson had a bad election. So he sponsored this amendment in 1954 that said basically that Section 501c3, that famous tax-exempt statute of the code, 501c3, Johnson said, we are going to prohibit those tax-exempt organizations from endorsing or opposing political candidates. Basically, if you're a tax-exempt organization, you cannot have political speech. And again, probably some of your applications, if any of you have applied for that tax-exempt status, are in Cincinnati and don't believe that there are rogue IRS agents in Cincinnati or Mansfield holding those up. That goes all the way to the top. So the Johnson Amendment. So what happens? We say, okay, we're a church, we're tax exempt. So we want all your ministers to be careful because what happens now, all of a sudden, moral speech is turned into political speech. So if I'm talking, pick your subject. Immorality of any type, sexual immorality, homosexual immorality, adultery, whatever it is, abortion, all of a sudden that speech, instead of being moral speech about truth, is turned into political speech. People are saying, wait a minute, you can't talk from the pulpit about that kind of stuff. That's political. And we're going to lose our tax-exempt status. You can't talk about that. Got to back off. So, do we back off from the truth? It's a matter, again, are you really pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ or not? Does it mean anything? Or is it just something you do every time you get up in the morning like you did at school, maybe? Say, yeah, I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ. What does it mean? Do I support the truth? Do I keep the truth? Do I speak the truth? Do I say, wait a minute, I've got to worry about my tax-exempt status before I say something? We're going to come to the point sooner or later, probably, the tax exemption will probably be up for debate. 
And we may lose it. And I say, who cares? If any of us care about losing our tax-exempt status, we've got to re-examine our allegiance to Jesus Christ or our commitment. Who is Jesus Christ in me? Is it more than a tax-exempt status? If it was up to me, I'd say, can the tax-exempt status now and let the preachers preach what they want to preach? Can it? Why are we subservient to a tax policy? What's God saying? You know, wait, yeah. You know, the church, well, they're not bad. They do a lot of good, but, you know, they're subservient to a tax code of man. Pray. Probably should put that way at the top. Pray. Fervent prayer does much. And of course, there's always the fallback position. Don't do anything. Let it go. If we are comfortable where we're at, if we're comfortable, as we heard last night, if we're comfortable where we're at, is that where we should be at? But if we are comfortable, we've got food, We've got our phone, we've got our car, we've got everything we need, and we don't want to make waves. Don't do anything. Always a fallback option. And Barna, the researcher, research group, they've put out a bunch of stuff, and basically other people have said the same. You know what? Christians really aren't that much different from the general secular population. I'm not talking about our denomination so much. It's Christianity in general, evangelical Christianity, is really not that much different. There's too much back and forth. We can't find that dividing line. Where's the border between Orthodox Christianity, evangelical Christianity, and secular society. And if that's true, if we really aren't that much different, that we think much like the same as secular society, we act much like the same of it, why do anything again? Let it go. The easiest way to go is let it go. But again, you've got to think. I just got up this morning, I pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ. Is that what he said? Do nothing? He went around everywhere and said, do nothing? Let me heal you. Let me give you some food. But don't do anything. I have nothing more to do other than feed you and heal you. Jesus said, you don't have to do anything about your relationship with God. Is that what he did? Feeding and healing? No, that was a sidelight. The truth was what he came for. The truth. But again, do nothing. Do nothing. So this is, we haven't gone through this to make anybody mad or get us all excited or to do a lot of whining and pitting. It's just the facts. We are in a conflict. It's not so much a matter between the right and the left, although it is in a way between liberalism and conservatism, although it is in a way, it's the fight between what is right and wrong, what is a lie and what is truth. That is the battle. Where do we stand in that battle? And this is just an ongoing episode. The assault on religious liberty is just an ongoing episode in that battle that's been going on since creation between right and wrong. But there is, in the end, for those that really, truly pledge allegiance and endure to the end with God's help, there's a remarkable capacity for faith to endure. Think about the, the thousands of years of persecution of the Jews, the multiple attempts to erase them, to eradicate them from the face of the earth. And you go around the world, and after all those attempts to kill the Jews, to eradicate them, to wipe them out, the Torah is still read in the synagogue. The Torah, God's word, has survived thousands of years of persecution. And so will the church in one form or another, very small maybe, but again, it will survive. 
The church took root in hostile pagan culture 2,000 years ago. So if you're going to bet against the health and human services mandate versus the church, in the end, the church is going to win. But that doesn't give us an excuse to say, I'm just going to sit back because I know who wins in the end. No, God said, you've got to engage, engage, speak the truth, do the truth. Because why? Why? Because that's the only way, that's the only way that the gospel can spread. Jesus isn't coming again to spread the gospel another time. He said, hey, the first time didn't work so good. The guys I had working for me for 2,000 years didn't do so good. The church failed. I have to come down again and spread the gospel again. No, it's not going to happen. So it's up to us to uphold and to spread his truth. Proverbs 28, 2. When a land transgressed, it has many rulers, but with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. Part of the reason why we are so blessed in North America, blessed actually in all of Western civilization, is because the underpinnings of the legal system, the underpinnings, no, there were no Christian nations, but the underpinnings are Judeo-Christian in origin. The underpinnings, the foundation, because there were just people, not through our own good, but just people through God's word that worked to uphold a country, a nation. And so what the the writer is saying here basically is saying, righteous individuals, righteous individuals are an essential component of a just society. Western civilization, as bad and good as it's been, was underpinned by Judeo-Christianity. And so righteous individuals are an essential component of a just society, There is not good social order where many people, especially those with power, are unjust. That's what the proverb is saying. If you have a lot of people and they're all vying for power and you have unjust people instead of righteous people doing their best, you have a problem. You have an unjust country, a country ridden with violence, a country without order. And you can go back yesterday, what was it, Paraguay? Some people said it was doing great. Some people said it wasn't doing so great. You have a lot of the Central American countries, South American countries, African countries, and you wonder why with all the vast resources that some of these countries have, they can't get their act together. It's because there are no righteous, just people. And that, by God's grace, is what we had, at least for some time, and that has given us the liberty to come here and worship. We need to uphold the truth. The truth, whether we win or lose, you uphold the truth as you pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ. Go ahead. Questions or comments? Anybody? Amen? Amen? Yes, in the back. Well, in, the, in, that, in that context, I think what you look from the early church is you preach the truth regardless of the consequences. But if we can support religious freedom, that makes it that much easier that the word propagates. So if we have that concept that says, yes, we have religious liberty, if we can support that, It makes the free flow of the gospel easier, but the bottom line is, yes, whatever that turns out, you preach the truth. But sometimes, maybe not us as a group, but general Christian denominations, things are not said because it might affect a certain interest group or their tax-exempt status or their supporters or somebody else. So you're preaching to the itching of the ears, in other words. Six. You want to come up here and say?
I'm from Canada, and the, uh, the Canadian healthcare system is funded by general tax revenue. I personally fund abortions, as along with all my fellow brothers and sisters from Canada. Um, when I think of truth and freedom, I think about uh, the message, for example, which was referred to last night in this presentation, that the truth sets me free from sin, regardless of what public policy uh, politicians decide upon. Uh, point, um, uh, next point. Uh, you can uh, win all the legal battles you want in the public square. It's not going to lead your country or your fellow men closer to Jesus. Um, uh, point number, uh, Canada has the freedom of religion with a subject clause, and that's because we will shut down the church of pedophilia. People are manipulating the word religion, and there's a lot of goofy things that are coming in the name of uh, religion. Uh, another point is that the, the, defini- the separation of church and state originally was to keep the state out of the church, and now it's gone backwards, and now it's taking the, um, church, out the, the church out of the state. And that's not what it was meant for. Uh, the, the other point that I would like to um, encourage people to do, something that I've done, is just simply to vote. And I don't vote for any party. I vote against all the others that I really don't like. Um, and, I, when, and that helps me um, participate. The, the, one of the points that you mentioned was to the, the culture, uh, to fight against the culture. That's one small way of fighting against the culture. It's just simply to vote. You're, and when you mark your ballot, you're not marking it for that. It's, usually, it's a lot easier to go through a process of elimination rather it is to find somebody to vote for. And that's, that's how I've been able to um, accomplish that. Um, the, other thing, the other question I, I, I thought, is it possible in, in your country to vote as a Christian for President Obama? And I, I would venture to say, because the whole political spectrum, it's really wide. There are other economic issues. I know of Christians that are on the left because they support um, helping the poor. They promote that their issues are fiscal issues. They're not social policy issues. And um, they are totally devoted to you know, helping poor people. And that's, that's, that's one thing that I've, I, I've seen. That's not personally my persuasion, but I, I've, I've seen people... People do that. Well, the issue there is you're not voting for truth. I mean, helping others, you can do that. Personally, you can do that. As a Christian, you're supposed to help. Why are you giving the authority to the government to help? Yeah, I'm voting for Obama because he's going to give everybody enough food. No, no, that's not the government's job. In effect, the government took that away from the church. Okay, But that is not if you, you put that and say, look, if I really want to help people, I'll go down and help at the food bank. I'll do this and that if I'm really concerned about that. But if I'm looking at Obama, who's in support not only of abortion in general, but partial birth abortion as a legislature in Illinois, there is no way, if I truly am pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ, that I can do that or that I should do that. I mean, if it's the social, you should go out and help. Do your thing. Go to the food banks, collect food. Support whatever. So if, if it gets to that point, you don't vote for anybody. If both sides support abortion there, or any other of, of this thing, there, there's no point in it. But the idea that we can't involve ourselves, and we say politics like it's a really dirty thing and nobody should do it. But politics is what runs a country. And again, if you take righteous people out, if we just say, no, I'm not going to do anything in the political sphere, well, that's exactly what the enemy wants. Isolate them. Don't let them vote. Don't let them talk. Put them away. Let them have no influence. That's what they're looking for. So we have to do it. Whether you know we really like the political scheme, but that's been going on since creation also. Nothing new there. Our job is to support righteous people, whether on one party or the other. But as far as that Canada, that human rights, what's in that... Uh, Section 13, wasn't that just knocked out of that statute? I read something like a few weeks ago it had passed that that Section 13 was now removed. 
in any case, In Michigan recently, a prominent Republican, um, and Republicans have historically been pro-Christian, has stated that the, the Republican Party has to move away from the, the Christian coalition. And basically, Republican versus Democrat has become a more of a social fiscal issue rather than any affiliation with any kind of religion um, or Christianity in specific. It is coming down to the point that we just have to preach the truth, period, and recognize that, that the political spectrum um, we can try to save our freedoms, but in a sense that it's going to get to the point where we're going to be persecuted and, and just live out the truth and preach the truth regardless of the consequences. Forget tax exempt if that's what it takes, like you've said. Yeah, I just want to make uh, one quick comment uh, regarding voting. It's a good idea, uh, but it wasn't God's idea. It was the Greeks' idea. And uh, to quote somebody that is not exactly my role model, Joe Stalin said, it doesn't matter who votes, it's who counts the votes. <laughs> Finally, um, <clears throat> the... Um, yeah, the Supreme Court might be counting votes more often. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you said most of them are the elites. Um, it's good to keep in mind that many of them are actually Satanists. You look into the uh, the media, and there's m much occultic symbolism, and uh, they just want us to think that we're fighting against nuns, against uh, nobodies. But it's just good to keep that in mind that you know uh, we are fighting against the evil here. And yeah. and the other problem with with the nuns quote. They hold positions of prominence in universities, which in turn, that idea of them holding positions, writing books, papers, influencing students, is a big problem because they hold sway and authority in institutions that we are sending our kids to. That's another big issue of, of this idea of which authority holds sway. And, and too many times we send our kids off and they succumb to the authority of the professor instead of the authority of their parents or God, as it is. Yeah. Is there anything else? All right. Thank you. Looks like choir time.